you should probably throw in a topic change sound effect right here. Or we can do it ourselves. (laughs) 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 That's pretty close, isn't it? I would like to know from our listeners, you know, often when you watch YouTube videos, you'll they, people who are looking for subscribers and stuff like that, they'll say, leave me a comment below and, and things like that, right? Mm. I mean, it's a bit harder for us to do that because we're a podcast. Right. But I'm genuinely interested to know and to hear from people who listen to the show. I would love to know, you know, what what is it about our show that keeps you listening where do you listen to our show? That's something that's very kind of perplexing for me because right. I think I've mentioned before. We know Vitaly does it over the dishes. Right. But... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, I think I've mentioned it before, but I've never myself had the opportunity really to listen to talk back podcasts very much just because of the nature of my lifestyle at the moment. There is never, mm. never really kind of a solid chunk of, you know, 90 minutes of time where I could just sit down and relax to the sound of other people talking because, mm. you know, in my work and in my work – if I'm not working on music and sound, which obviously means that I'm unable to listen to other music and sound while I'm working on my own music and sound, mm-hmm. then I'm listening to music while I work. Uh, but even even then, I can't, I'm not sure about you. Actually, I do. I am sure about you because we had this conversation before as well. But I find it really hard to work when I'm listening to music that has words in it. All right. So, yeah, the idea of listening to a talkback podcast, there just isn't really sort of time in my lifestyle at the moment when I have that mm. opportunity. So I'm very curious uh, to know what it is about Station 13 that keeps you coming back and also where it is that you you like listening to us. I know that mm. one esteemed friend of the show said that he lives in Japan and he said that uh, in the bath, <laughs> having the, the <laughs> Japanese bath while relaxing in the bath is a, is a you know a great uh, time to unwind with those dulcet tones of utter mundaneness that we offer here at station 13 utter <laughs> i added utter you know yeah yeah it'd be good to hear about it on the reddit or on the twitters or or whatever really um links in the show notes i listen i'm like vitali i listen to a lot of it while i'm doing the washing up do you not have a washing up slot in your lifestyle you do the washing up don't you yeah we do um we have a dishwasher but we don't use it very much because we prefer the, mm. the the old-fashioned old-fashioned way. Mm. One thing in my family is that my father always used to stress when we were growing up that mm-hmm. washing up is a, a family communal time uh, okay. and it's something that everyone should participate in. Uh, right see. now, my kids are a little bit young to sort of help out with uh, the, the washing up, but it's something that we you know try to do together even though we have a dishwasher. So one of us will wash, one of us will wipe. Right. And usually it takes on the order of maybe 20 minutes. Right, yeah, yeah. And obviously, when you're doing that, you are the whole point is that you know you use that time to talk about things, and right. that obviously means it's quite difficult to listen to talk back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Okay, yeah. Because I, I mean, my my washing up takes about twenty minutes, half an hour as well. Um, so I don't tend to listen to these things in one sitting. Like I'll I'll listen to however long it takes to do the washing up, and then I'll pause it, and then I'll carry on the next day. Uh, so you don't have to have a full ninety minute sort of time slot. Mm. But we de- we definitely are different from you in that uh, we we divide our tasks, <laughs> divide and specialize. So usually yeah. I do all the washing up. I see, and so I that is sort of my own time. That is the main chunk of like time that I get entirely to myself in the day. So I'm I'm almost uh, as protective as you are of of that time. Like it's as sacred for me, but 
for the opposite reason. Mm. Like that is very much me time. So I, 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 I sort of make, and I'm either listening to podcasts or watching YouTube videos or, or doing sort of like listening to Japanese or Spanish mm. stuff to get some study in or whatever. Nice. But, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Do you, do you use headphones when you do that or do you listen through speakers? No, no, no. I do. Cause I don't want to disturb my wife. She usually is watching TV by this point. Okay. And, uh, so I, I put on the headphones. Nice. Cool. That's great. So I have a, a little bit of a uh, an update on a point that probably will interest very few Station 13 listeners, but that's okay. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Um, a few episodes back, we spoke of the software development model behind uh, Renoise, which is a mm. my main sort of tool, the, the, the one tool. It's basically my equivalent of Danny's Vim. Right. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> slightly archaic way of doing things of which there are sort of many different more modern approaches that the majority of people take but you just prefer this older way of doing things because you're used to it and it has inherent benefits to it which the new ways don't really offer you both actually often they're both related to keyboard input as well that's right obviously vim but also tracker software is much more keyboard driven and you can you can navigate it much faster than absolutely the more modern sort of pointy clicky piano roll interface. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's precisely right. Anyway, so we were talking before about Renoise and the, the software development model where essentially the developers uh, have been labeled as producing abandonware mm. in the sense that it's been like three years since Renoise has been updated mm-hmm. and the developers are, sorry, the developer mm. is usually not so vocal on the forums or on Reddit uh, in updating people about what's going on with the project. Mm. And in his mind, the program Renoise is solid. It doesn't crash. It's stable. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely true. Like it rarely ever crashes. I think in the, mm-hmm. I've been using it for like, I don't know, like 10, 11 years, solid, nonstop, every day, mm. more or less. Mm. And it, I think it's crashed twice or three times in that period. Right. And in in all cases, it's been because some plugin has, you know, Got done done something cheeky, right, right, <laughs> and then and the and the program crashes. But you know that's a pretty pretty fantastic track record as far as software mm-hmm. stability goes. Anyway, feature wise, being a tracker, being a fairly esoteric approach to making music in this day and age, it's very it's complete. You know, really, there are only very few things that you could say the software lacks, mm-hmm. and for that reason, the developer is in the mind that well. If it's stable and it works great and the functionality is there, mm-hmm. then it's done. It's completed. You know what? Why, right. why? Why do I have to keep on making these updates to prove that it's current or it's active or it's alive? Right, right. Just for the point of that, when the software is mature, <laughs> if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Exactly. Yes. So um, the update is the good news is that the developer finally dropped some information on the Renoise forums and everything got suddenly. It was an inferno of joy <laughs> an inferno of joy that's right i mean just people were people were like all these people were coming out of the uh, the woodwork the the lurkers so to speak on the mm. forum who just read them but don't post anything mm-hmm. the update was that the developer has more time now for dev- bringing back to the project and mm. he's uh, back on it and daily now it, basically renoise is alive <laughs> and uh, he's working on a new update Interestingly, the main feature of the new update is something that's going to take a long time, mm-hmm. uh, and that is, uh, I think we mentioned this before, but that is updating the whole interface for HD, 
like uh, right. what would you call it? Retina. Uh, well, yeah. in, in the Apple world, it's called Retina. Yeah, that yeah. style of uh, high definition, you know, 4K monitor kind of thing. Right, so at right. the moment, at the moment, Renoise is entirely bitmap graphics, mm-hmm. and uh, they don't scale too well. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, uh, being that it is essentially, it, it it is something that could be very easily done, at least from a design point of view, not a technical point of view, but from a design mm-hmm. point of view, it's something that could be very easily replicated in uh, scalable, you know, vector style graphics. Right. It seems like. Yeah, a lot of people are frustrated that Renoise still is using this bit, bitmap graphics when right. uh, it's such a, an obvious candidate for being something that could be scalable. Yeah, but, and that is the main thing that, you know, counter to the viewpoint that he had that Renoise is complete and doesn't need any updates. That is the main sort of thing that is that flies in the face of that, that it's it's been a bit of an eyesore for yeah, some time now. That's right. And um, anyway, so he has... Uh, on the forum posted that this is something that he's working on right now, but it's going to take some time. And obviously, mm. I mean, it's it's essentially rewriting the entire <laughs> rendering engine. Yeah. 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 Uh, so it's, it is going to take some time. But, yeah. I, you know, with software, as a user of software and somebody who doesn't understand much of the way that software actually works behind the hood, mm-hmm. this is me, you know, I think even most people who have used a variety of different software you, you get a, a feeling from software development when you don't know how it works. You get a feeling that, you know, oh, this program or this developer mm. really knows what he's doing mm. or really knows what she's doing. And it just mm-hmm. is solid. You know, it, it, it just works reliably and it doesn't crash and it's reliable. Mm. You know, it's, it's just faithful and it's just there and, it, you know, it does what it's supposed to do. And the functionality that comes to the program is always something that, you know, raises your eyebrows and think, well, that's a great idea. Oh, wow, that's, that's excellent. You know, that's a, a fantastic addition. Mm. And then on the other side of the coin, you have software that has, you know, gives you that feeling that, oh, this is just shaky. You know, mm. <laughs> it's, it's just going to crash at any moment or uh, it's just unreliable or features are coming to the program that you can see. I don't know that these developers really understand how us users actually see their product right. and actually use it. Right. Well, Renoise definitely falls well into the camp of the former mm. in that it's utterly reliable, as I mentioned, right. and the functionality that comes to it is always complementary to the core of what a tracker DAW is right? and never sort of extraneous or superfluous or, you know, bloatware. It's always something that you just sort of think, well, that is a fantastic idea of how to take advantage of this paradigm. Mm. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, it's really good news for Renoise, the program, and Renoise, the community, because everybody knows that the developer who goes by the handle Tactic mm-hmm. on uh, on the forums, everybody knows that he is, without doubt, an excellent, excellent developer who right. knows what he's doing. So that means that if he's going to be doing a high-definition vector interface for this program... Mm-hmm. It's going to be fantastic, <laughs> and it's going to be worth waiting for as well. So, yeah. anyway, oh, well, that's very exciting. I don't suppose he's got to the point where he can show any screenshots or sneak previews or anything like that yet. It's all just he, that he said he's doing it. Yeah, even if he was at that point, he wouldn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he. I, I guess maybe uh, he may be a sort of a what you might call an old-fashioned programmer who just mm-hmm. sort of quietly does brilliant work <laughs> uh, and i think that in his case you know the the idea of 
keeping his community up to date on what's going on and sort of teasing people or keeping people uh, engaged in the product or things like that. That's never been his priority. Mm. And his priority has clearly always been rock-solid software right, right. <laughs> with, with, with excellent, excellent design and consideration. So, yeah, I think if I had a choice between a developer who updates you every day on what's going on but is making poor decisions... <laughs> or one who doesn't say anything for three years <laughs> and then and then sort of, you know, comes back with a little post on a forum saying I'm working on it again and then in another year delivers this amazing update. I think I would prefer the latter. Oh, well, that's very exciting. We'll have to revisit this topic when it's finally released. You can review the new interface. Yeah, that could be sometime, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so how are things with you? What's new? Uh, not too bad. So I said before that I had bought all the books for the JLPT, but then I had been concentrating on the accent side of things, so I hadn't really looked at them. Over the last couple of weeks, I've broken them out. I got a bit frustrated one day when I tried to do some recordings and I couldn't get them sounding right and I threw my toys out the pram. So I decided to spend a bit of time mm. with the uh, study of, of non-pronunciation related things. And I bought all these books there's quite a lot to them. And so I thought, well, I'll just look at, you know, how many chapters there are and how many of the weeks there are until the test, which is on December the 1st, mm. and sort of see roughly if I wanted to go through the entire book between now and then, or between now and a bit earlier, actually, so that there's, you know, a bit of time mm. to consolidate any new study, right? how much I'd have to cover and what sort of pace I'd have to move at. And the answer is four chapters a week. Okay, <laughs> that's uh, a little ambitious. That is that is quite a lot. So uh, I've been doing it. I've sort of mapped it out and I've prioritized like the kanji and the vocabulary and the grammar books and then the comprehension and the listening stuff I've sort of pushed to the end because I figure that'll be easier to do once I've got the solid foundation and all the vocabulary. Uh, but it's actually been quite fun. It's been quite interesting. It's a surprising number of new sort of words and phrases. Like, you know, even I had got myself under the impression that I was not too bad at Japanese. But I'm, I may have mentioned this before, but I think I've become very good at pretending I'm good at Japanese. Mm. <laughs> like I, mean, I can that fool is, most people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is that is kind of an important part of uh, once you get to sort of the intermediate level with a language. Right. There, there is always going to be a certain degree of faking it, basically, because right. yeah, often with conversation, you'll only really pick up on the, the gist of what is being said to you in the latter half of it. And so, you know, it is often helpful to sort of just basically go with the flow for a bit and pretend that you understand and then figure it out as you go along. Right, right, exactly. And the other skill that I think, possibly to a greater degree than Japanese, the skill that I learned while I was in Japan was the ability to communicate with a very limited set of vocabulary and grammar, very limited set of tools. Right. There's a there's a book by Randall Monroe, who's the um, XKCD guy. Oh, yeah. You know, the yeah. comic XKCD. Fantastic, yeah. He's got a book called Thing Explainer, <laughs> where he describes a lot of complicated scientific ideas and objects and stuff using only the most common thousand words in English. Right. And it's it's really interesting. Uh, I have it. I'll put a link in the show notes. But mm. it's sort of describing these very difficult things, but only using simple language. 
and some part, or, or only using common language, I should say. Mm. Uh, so some parts that you know are a little bit contrived, but it, it shows how this is possible. And I think that is a skill that I also kind of gained while I was in Japan, mm. which is very important and all very well. But now that I'm actually sort of trying to do this test, it's interesting taking the opposite stance and trying to learn all these sort of new words and phrases and also kanji. Uh, kanji, I was, I, I did, you know, that was the first thing I learned, as I think I've mentioned on this show before and to anyone else who would listen. Uh, <laughs> before I learned any actual Japanese, I sort of went through this book by a guy called James Heisig mm. called Remembering the Kanji, which teaches you the main 2000 Joyo kanji, uh, but in English, it teaches you a single English keyword for each kanji. And I went through all that. And when I first arrived in Japan, as a result of that, my reading and writing was actually not too bad, but I just didn't, I couldn't speak Japanese. And I would actually do what I hear some Chinese people do, which is to, you know, take a notebook around with them. And when they struggle to communicate, to actually write things down right. in Chinese, or in my case, in sort of pidgin English kanji, mm. and show it to people and kind of get things across that way. But over the seven years that I was there, I kind of lost all of that ability because I pivoted very hard away from sort of treating kanji as very important and towards natural speaking and conversational ability. Right. Uh, which I think was absolutely the right choice. But it means that now, sort of seven to ten years later, I, I've completely sort of lost my ability that I used to be able to handwrite reasonably well. And now, even if I write a birthday card to my wife, I have to sort of type it out on my phone to double check. I'm not going to muck up any of the kanji. Mm. So it's been quite interesting and quite fun revisiting that i've uh, i've been using a similar technique have i spoken before about like how heisig works i know i've mentioned that i i used it as a way to learn them and that it uses english but have i talked at all about the, the sort of technique i think maybe you have it's basically it's two things it's a mnemonic system for remembering the kanji mm. so you break the kanji down into components and then each of the, those components has a meaning. And then you build up a story that, that pulls those components together and describes the sort of meaning of this composed kanji. Right. Uh, so th that's the sort of mnemonic technique. And then the other thing it is, is a special order for learning kanji that is very amenable to using this mnemonic technique. So you prioritize kanji that will form the components of lots of other kanji down the line mm. rather than what most textbooks and what Japanese schools do, which is to prioritize the most common kanji that you're going to be using every day, mm. uh, which is a sort of, that is the, the controversial side of Heisig's method that uh, you kind of have to go through the whole book to get the value. Whereas with other systems, you know, even after you learn only the first two, 200 kanji, you can go quite a long way in real life. Mm. Anyway, so what I'm doing this time, I'm obviously not using his order uh, because I'm going through the order of this JLPT textbook and I'm only doing the ones that are in this textbook. Mm. But I'm using his mnemonic methods. I'm still sort of constructing these kanji out of these components and thinking of little stories to remember them. Uh, but this time, instead of having those stories be sort of English stories or phrases, mm. I'm actually writing them in Japanese on the back of the flashcard that I make. So okay. I sort of have, because now I have a bit more Japanese, well, I have 
you know, a lot more Japanese than zero, which is what I had last time I did this. <laughs> yeah, I can do I can do the stories in Japanese, and that's quite actually that's actually quite helpful because the word that I use as a component of the more complicated kanji mm. is often actually written using that kanji in Japanese. So you can visually see how these words come together to form the more complex kanji, right. as opposed to seeing two English words and remembering what they are and then remembering that they go together. Mm. But it's been quite fun. And what's been quite surprising is that although like, I feel like I've lost all my ability with kanji and I can't really write very much anymore, as I go through them and as I sort of break them down again all these stories that i invented like 10 years ago when i was first going through this book they start coming back to me <laughs> i guess this goes back to the story with the piano the other day like the the weirdly emotional uh, experience but right they like i'm go- i'm flicking through them and you know seeing these words and i'm like oh yeah this is the one where the chef is yawning when he's supposed to be doing the cooking and the rice catches fire <laughs> and this is the one where the strict taskmaster is throwing rice at the gentleman covered in a blanket the size of 10 rice fields like, <laughs> it's like they were like oh yeah it's that one i remember you and there's something kind of nostalgic about all these things coming back so wow yeah, it's been quite a fun experience that's um th- those short stories are, are brilliant were, were those two were those two actual examples just now or were you improvising they were no so the the one with the chef yawning and the rice catching fire that is taku if you can visualize them i can i can actually write down the actual kanji just so to help visualize them but taku is in you know to cook yeah. especially rice yeah um and the other one was shiku is in to cover the font is very small here but I see. so taku is the left half is fire yeah and the right half is the first the, the first character in akubi which means yawn yeah is the right half there it actually means like lack or you know the, the absence of something right but but in in heisig and i followed his idea uh, i use yawn because it's easy, easier to visualize someone yawning than it is to visualize the absence of something right so that's the first one and then the second one is is a little more complicated but the right hand side is a character that is that is often a component in lots of other characters it doesn't really mm. stand as a kanji in its own right in japanese i think it does in chinese right. but it's a it's a component of a lot of other things and it derives from uh the the verb to strike or to hit mm. but it looks a bit like a person right so that's the sort of strict taskmaster or the slave master that's the image I that i associate with that side and then on the left side the Heisig book actually breaks that down into two halves. Mm. It calls the the top half of that. I'll put I'll put all these characters in the show notes and stuff, so even people who don't know kanji can sort of f- follow along with what I'm talking about. But the top left quadrant of this uh, kanji is uh, in Heisig. It's an arrowhead, mm. but I found that difficult to remember. So I actually broke that down into three sections itself. So ten rice field yeah. and then a little dot which i called a single grain of rice i see yeah uh, and then at the bottom is kata which is like personal gentleman right so that's where i get that and the, and the verb means to cover right right so the idea is that on the left hand side is a gentleman covered with a blanket the size of 
10 rice fields. And then I've got this little dot at the top, which I didn't know what to do with. So I imagine the sort of slave master on the right just throwing one grain of rice at a time on, onto this guy covered in the blanket just to wind him up. Brilliant. It's a shame almost that, uh, you know, Asian children obviously don't learn kanji this way. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, you, you can imagine that um, this approach to learning kanji would probably be somewhat a hit with the, you know, the the five-year-olds and the six-year-olds who have to learn it in primary school. Yeah, it's really uh, fun. Like, thinking up all these stories is also mm. really fun. So it's good. I mean, you could try it with your children. But I think the the, the interesting thing is they have an advantage over us adults in terms of assimilating information quickly. Like children are generally better at learning stuff, right? They, they might. I think the technical term is neural plasticity. Then. Right, exactly, yes. <laughs> but we have the advantage over them in terms of logical connections. Yeah. Like we, we can, and so this idea of breaking things down and then reconstructing them mm. is something that adults tend to do better than children. And so this yeah. technique is sort of trying to take advantage of that ability that we have. Mm. But children also have a great imagination, so they would be really good at thinking up these stories. Right. In fact, if you had children and you were wanting to use this technique, because the, the hardest part of this technique is coming up with all these stories, right? First you break right. all these characters down, and then you're like, now I've got all these parts. I've got 10, a rice field, a gentleman, a random dot, and a slave master. <laughs> What am I going to do with this, you know? <laughs> and uh, and it takes quite a lot of time to think up all these stories. Right. So, if, But if you had children, I might be tempted just to say, what if I told you Tanner Ricefield, a gentleman, a, a random dot and a slave master? Like, what would you come up with right. and see, see if that's useful? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. I think it's one of the... Um, uh, interesting benefits from this kind of um, I'm sure there's there's a technical linguistic term for it but uh, this sort of um, pictographic writing system right it, ideographic is yeah, I think the go. term ideographic because yeah. uh, that's obviously not a benefit that we have when we're learning a language where the uh, the writing the written language is purely phonetic right as it in the, is in the case with you know most other Western languages right and it's actually particularly difficult in you know in English spelling is very inconsistent and right. the only real mnemonic you can use apart from there's a couple for for common mistakes like advise and advice versus mm. practice and practice actually in american english they spell practice the same way both times but mm. anyway in english the, the easiest way or the the most effective way to remember the spelling of things and the way that is commonly used for example by people doing spelling bees which are very popular here in america mm. is to learn about the etymology of words because you know that certain patterns of spelling are very common in words with a Greek provenance versus other patterns of spelling which come from Latin mm. versus others which come from the Germanic roots. And so if you know about that history, you can reconstruct what the spelling is likely to be. But that's extremely advanced. That doesn't really help you as a beginner sort of learning things. Mm. Whereas, you know, this this very visual, imaginative approach with the stories works extremely well for kanji. Hmm. And it's actually, it's helpful for remembering the meaning of vocabulary as well. Like I found a couple of times there have been words that I've struggled to remember what they mean. Like I, I, hear, I hear the word and I can't remember exactly what it means. 
Right. Uh, but then when I learned the kanji for that word, and I used the same sort of technique to build up the kanji, I find that I can sort of hear the word, associate it with its written form, or maybe read the word even. And that story will come back to me. And not only the way to write the kanji, but the actual meaning of the word will also come back to me. So all these sort of mm. things support each other in a way that's very nice. Yeah, I think that's key with remembering anything, really not necessarily language learning, but uh, finding something else to focus on right. other than the simple act of this equals that. Right. You know, sort of finding another connection. It, it's almost the the power of the subconscious, really, mm. isn't it? You know, it's... It's a well-known thing that um, if you are dealing with a problem and you're intensely focused on solving this problem and that is all you can think about and you are concentrating with every available neuron to sort of try and figure out something, Mm. then if you just leave it be for a while and you go away and have a shower, have a walk, eat something, go talk to somebody, do something else or have a sleep – often, you know, that's when your subconscious starts to kick in and all of a sudden it just comes to you, oh, this is the solution. Right. Why did it require me to not be thinking about this problem to suddenly come up with this solution? Right. And perhaps perhaps there's a connection there that, you know, when you are intensely focused on remembering that this kanji equals this pronunciation equals this meaning, sort of being intensely focused on purely that, is it, it can be done just like solving a problem can be done by devoting all of your thought to it. Mm-hmm. But uh, another effective thing that maybe is similar to the idea of using the subconscious is to distract yourself with something else. For example, as you said, the actual act of sitting there breaking down the kanji into components and then thinking, okay, this is a gentleman and this is his rice grain and there's the 10 rice fields and right, right. all of that. The actual fact, actual act of creating that is sort of like a distraction and leaving the memorization to the subconscious in a way. Right. Maybe that's a bit of a bit of a stretch, but you know, it's an interesting uh, sort of uh, parallel. I think. Right. There's there's that aspect, and there's also like there's a definitely subconscious sort of processing of information is a thing that happens. Mm. But I also think it's really important to to have input from other things and to have influences, like especially when you talk about really concentrating on something. I, I'm thinking not just like learning vocabulary and language learning stuff, but programming problems and those sorts of things as well, right? The the kind of problems that you encounter at work. Mm. Leaving it aside and letting your subconscious do the work is important. But also sometimes completely unrelated things will sort of somehow, I don't know, like fire a random unrelated neuron, which happens to lead down some logical pathway that ends up resulting in the answer yeah that's absolutely true i think that's why i've always thought it's really important to have a range of of different interests and hobbies like i meet a lot of people in the games industry who really only play video games yeah and don't have much else in the way of interest yeah that's absolutely true and it's it's a well-known thing that you know if you have musician's block or writer's block or artist's block or whatever, one of the best things you can do is just throw yourself into something totally unrelated to your artistic field that is also creative as well. And I I completely agree with you that one of the, I guess, sad deficiencies, I'm going to go out on a limb and call it a deficiency, Mm -hmm. with the game development industry Mm. is a lot of us are too focused on the genre of games and the medium of games as an art form. Mm. And that's good. Mm. I mean, it does, it does, it produces 
ideas and concepts that are completely saturated in this kind of gaming culture, right, right. which for somebody who is part of that culture is extremely comforting. You can see, right. for example, you know, take example like a, like a bullet hell shooter game. Mm. You know, it's just the very concept of a bullet <laughs> hell shooter game is is so thoroughly steeped in in gaming culture. And I think then, um, you know, I, I guess the reason why I would call it a deficiency is because there is just so much out there and there's so much inspiration to be had mm. and stimulation to be had from doing something like, oh, you know, well, I can't think of what I should do about this game design problem, so I'm going to go and walk around an art gallery right now. Right. Or, you know, I'm going to go to the library and dig out a book on Renaissance painting and have a look. Or right. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to find the, the most funky designed building in my city and walk through it and think about what the architect was thinking. Right. You know, yeah. or go to a shop, go to a shop and pick up a random product and then just think to yourself, what was the industrial designer thinking and what were they trying to communicate with this design? You know, there's just so much fun to be had if you sort of, you know, leave aside the fact that you're making games or whatever it is that you do, whether mm. you're designing buildings or products or whatever, mm -hmm. put that aside and take a more kind of macro view of the whole pursuit right. and think that, you know, what is what are we actually trying to communicate here? And that's where you begin to see parallels between all of these different forms of artistic expression and, and the creation of experience for a consumer or for a, uh, a viewer or a listener, you know, all of that, there begins to form sort of parallels between them. And then when you begin to see that, it's much easier to, to, to for example, it's much easier to say, look at an oil painting and then get inspiration from music mm. yeah. <laughs> for the oil, from the oil painting because you begin to see those parallels. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, it's something that, uh, for example, Miyamoto uh, from Nintendo talks about a lot uh he i think famously barely plays computer games at all <laughs> outside of work right. uh, which right. you know is probably taking it a little far uh, and sometimes he can he can be surprisingly innocent or or i don't want to say ignorant uh because that's the wrong kind of word but like there's a lot of things that are just sort of well known in gaming culture that he just doesn't really know about because it's it doesn't really affect him right uh, and i think that's part of the reason that Nintendo games have that kind of quirky, different feeling from 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 most other games, mm. and most of their extremely sort of genre defining, industry changing games have been inspired by totally unrelated stuff. Like Zelda was inspired by him taking a walk up in the in the mountains near Kyoto and seeing all the spiders hanging in the trees which i've done as well mm. uh, if you go up in the mountains kyoto is surrounded it's like in a valley it's surrounded by mountains and the mountains are very heavily forested mm. and if you go just a little bit off the beaten track as i accidentally did once on my birthday when i got completely lost <laughs> <laughs> and the only way i managed to find my way back to kyoto was by listening for the sound of cars and walking in that direction <laughs> wow <laughs> and when I got that far off off the main course that people go on, obviously people don't walk there very much. And so right. nature uh, is much more sort of in control of that environment. And the sort of tiny little paths that I was following or walking through would often have spider webs covering the entire 
path. Like the spider has obviously right. gone from one tree on one side of the path to the other on the other side. And just Don't you love those? Covered, covered it. And the spiders there are like... Massive. Big. <laughs> Massive. They're like, you know, a good five centimeters or six centimeters, like, uh, like I don't know, two or three inches uh, in, in American uh, terminology. Right. Um, I mean, nothing compared with Australia, of course, but, you know, they're, they're quite big and quite threatening looking with their black and the bright yellow kind of yeah. uh, highlights on them. Yeah. So, and apparently they're not, poisonous but i wasn't to know so i was like very carefully like walking back into the forest and then around them and back out to the path and uh, all all that to say zelda was inspired by exactly that experience and all these large mm. spiders that you see quite often in zelda are directly inspired by that mm. same thing with nintendogs which was just because he got a dog and he was playing with his <laughs> dog the whole time and the next thing like nintendo's making a dog game like right <laughs> yeah yeah, it's interesting that um, programming as well is is you know directly uh, affected by this similar kind of working of the subculture, uh, subconscious, or mm. um, the being distracted by something else that is mildly related to what you're doing. Mm. I have uh, one of my best friends is a scientist who works at a, a noted movie company in uh, California, mm. and um, he makes use of a programming language called R. Mm-hmm. R R R <laughs> very very hard to say if you are not American. R <laughs> the letter R the one that comes yes. before S. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, and um, this is a I guess actually obviously you know a lot more about it than I do, but I think it's a programming language for that specialises in handling huge huge massive amounts of data. Right. And he told me that it, it's such a great language that he can sit at his table, at his desk, literally for an entire day mm-hmm. looking at a problem on a piece of paper and not writing anything. Then he'll go away and do something else, like have lunch or something, come back and he'll write one line of R code mm-hmm. and that's like his whole job done. <laughs> <laughs> it's so powerful but so complex to sort of figure out in your mind that you know, a single line of it can do all of the stuff, mm-hmm. but actually formulating that line is a mental process that requires intense concentration. Right. And you get to the point where you're so saturated with this problem and f- structuring it in your mind and writing it down doesn't, apparently, for him at least, doesn't seem to help. Mm-hmm. Just sort of looking at the problem, going through the things in your mind, going away, coming back, and then writing down one line of code. It's kind of like the idyllic image of the, what's that movie? Goodwill Hunting, you know, the, the genius <laughs> savant, yeah. prodigy, the, the savant, yeah. so the genius mathematician yeah. who writes up one formula on the board and that just, you know, changes everything. <laughs> yeah, I think that is a thing to be, a, a sort of distinction to be made that, I mean, I, I've never really worked in R, but I've worked in various functional programming languages which share a similar sort of property in terms of their terseness Mm. but it's not really the programming language that is complex or requires this deep thought it's the fact that the thing you're doing usually when you're in this sort of situation involves quite complex mathematics and working through the mathematics in your head right is what's sort of complicated and takes the time i see and then the ability to then express that in one line 
that's that's a nice property of the programming language. Mm. But the programming language is just enabling you to express a thing that you have considered. You know, it's cl- it's closer to doing mathematics, I think, that sort of work, right, right, than it is to the the kind of engineering style of programming, right. I see. Which is yeah. also it's not to say it's better or worse, right. But it's a different sort of thing. I think if you try to do that sort of mathematical reasoning in a more engineering-y type language like mm. C or Rust or something, it would involve a lot more typing. Mm. But you would also, you'd kind of have to do that typing because you'd have to break it down sort of into these steps in order to reason about it at all. And I see. I'm not sure that it would take any less time or any less thought. Uh, it would just be, you'd be exercising your finger muscles a lot more while you're doing that mm. thinking and spending that time. I see. Uh, similarly, if you try to do sort of engineering type work, like nuts and bolts, shifting data around kind of work, which is what a lot of systems programming is, right? in a very high level language like R or Haskell or something like that. That's cool. It, it also is not a great match because you're 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 constantly fighting the system like Mm. haskell for example has a garbage collector which will keep track of memory for you so you don't have to worry about you know i'm gonna request this amount of memory from the computer at this point and i'm gonna tell the computer that i've i no longer need that memory later Mm. it's a common source of bugs by freeing up the memory too much or not freeing it up when you should or whatever Mm. Uh, haskell along with many other languages, deals with that for you. But if the job you're trying to do is in the business of allocating and deallocating and shuffling around memory very quickly, and that's its entire job, Mm. then you're always going to be wanting to subvert that automatic system and you're going to be frustrated. Similarly, Haskell, uh, because it tries to be mathematical, it has what's called lazy evaluation, which means it doesn't bother to perform a calculation until it actually needs the result of that calculation. Right. So you can express some long, complicated thing. And there may be parts of that equation that, because of the environment, like because of the particular input you have, never get run. And so by having this lazy evaluation, you can avoid running it entirely. And you can also spread the length of time it takes to do the computation Mm. more evenly across the the use of the computer but sounds sounds very efficient right uh and it can be but uh, again there are times when you don't want that there are times when you want to have very precise control over exactly when a computation takes place you know that the processor is going to be free during this time and you need it to happen now Mm. because you know you're going to be busy doing something else later for example Mm. or the other thing that that is a problem with lazy evaluation is until that computation is actually processed, it needs to be stored somewhere, right? The system needs to remember, oh, this is a computation I have to do in the future, and this is all the data I need in order to do that computation. And so it can actually use more memory to do that. So you're trading the sort of efficiency for the amount of memory used. And if you're not careful, you can end up using like gigabytes of memory just with all these computations that it turns out it's never going to bother to evaluate anyway (laughs) i see um so you know there there are trade-offs involved and one thing is not always better than the other you need to sort of work out uh based on your situation but for that very sort of Mm. mathematical 
kind of work where the the difficult thing is not in the writing the program but it's in the reasoning through the problem right then these languages like r definitely allow you to do that Mm. remind me uh, just again is erlang a functional programming language yes it is a it is an an untyped functional programming language which is uh, a sort of debate that i won't go into <laughs> right uh, but yes essentially it's functional yeah uh, we should probably just point out that untyped doesn't mean that you don't type it into the computer oh yeah because <laughs> yeah. that that'd be really cool if it's it's just pure thought <laughs> <laughs> you just you've got all these erlang programmers just sitting at their desks looking down at their notebooks just kind of not writing anything but just right. thinking about all this code. <laughs> now the reason i ask is because um there's a really fantastic website which you probably know of called meetup.com mm-hmm. which is kind of like a it's sort of like a social media network but it's basically focusing around events right. in a city uh, and I was uh, just yesterday actually going through some of the events in Stockholm for my business and uh, yeah I found one there that was the Erlang the Stockholm Erlang users group ah. and I thought oh that's that's nice and maybe uh, that's a, when I saw that I thought oh, wait a moment that's uh, isn't this one of Danny's thingy, what's McCullough, <laughs> what's it, funny programming language functional thingies? It is. <laughs> so, it's, yeah. it's actually invented in Scandinavia. I think it might be Sweden. Oh, really? I can't remember for sure if it's Sweden. It's invented by a guy called Joe Armstrong. Oh, that doesn't sound very Swedish, does it? <laughs> he is English, but okay. he was working for... Was it Ericsson or Motorola? Or he, he was working for one of the big telephony companies, Giants, in the 80s. Right. And he invented Erlang particularly for telephony and for the problems involved in that because Erlang's big claim to fame is that it deals very well with failure. Oh, okay. Like when you know there are going to be problems, like you know the wire is going to cut out or whatever, there's going to be connection issues how to recover from that failure mm. well. That's what Erlang is very good at doing. Well, that, um, yeah, I guess if it is a, I mean, being Ericsson. Then oh, yes. yeah, Ericsson, Erlang, Ericsson language. <laughs> it's actually named after a guy called Erlang, but the joke is that also it's it's a portmanteau of Ericsson language as well. So it must have been Ericsson. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, then, uh, then it makes perfect sense that there would be a... Uh, Stockholm Erlang users group because if it right. came from Stockholm right. as in uh, where Ericsson is then uh, yeah that makes perfect sense I'm uh, putting together for myself for the first time ever mm. a pedal board a pedal board is uh, a modern convenience for the electronic playing musician who plays uh, any kind of uh, electric guitar or bass mm-hmm. uh, or even vocalists as well these days sometimes have pedal boards but basically uh, you know, you listeners will be well aware that uh, one of the tools in the arsenal of the electric guitarist or bassist mm-hmm. uh, are these what they call effect pedals. And so um, they're basically, you know, little electronic analog or digital circuits that uh, your guitar goes into and comes out sounding very, very different. Mm. And uh, the majority of stuff that you hear, you basically it'll either be, you know, distorted guitar through an amplifier that's giving you that sound or will be the sound of a pedal doing exactly the same thing. Right. And so, uh, yeah, a pedal board, the reason it was called, it's called a board is just because often some people have so many pedals that it takes so long to set it all up by plugging everything in mm-hmm. to everything else. Right, right. That it's much more convenient to set it up on like a an actual hard board, tie everything down with like, you know, Velcro tape or whatever and uh, mm. have everything pre-wired so you can just plop it down Put your 
guitar or bass in one side and the output to the amp or the PA in the other side and off you go. Right. Yeah. So I say for the first time ever because bassists uh, also use pedals. Mm-hmm. The application for pedals for a bass player is obviously a little bit different right. uh, than for guitarists. Mm-hmm. But um, I've always been fairly stubbornly – this is probably predictable <laughs> from the people who know me. But... You had me at stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, uh, I've always been kind of a staunch bass, cable, amp, mm. purist. Yeah, you know? right, yeah. Um, I mean, you can see that in my selection of instruments because I, I I like playing the Fender P bass, which is the precision bass, the very first bass guitar that was ever invented, mm-hmm. uh, and is basically as bare bones as you can get. And there's like basically, yeah, ah, nice, <laughs> stringing me along there, but don't fret. It's <laughs> a double punch. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, I just sort of like the idea of now. This is entirely in my own mind, and I'm not criticizing people who use pedals mm-hmm. but i like the the idea of not being able to hide behind anything right right you know if my playing sounds really great that's because i'm playing really well mm-hmm. not because this little box on the floor is producing this brilliant sound right 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 like now, the classic is you that, too right have you seen that right. uh bill bryson not bill bryson he's an author uh right. bill bailey uh the comedian He's he's got a piece where he he plays he's sort of playing something and it sounds really U two ish right and uh, and it sounds epic and cool and then the pedal stops working and you can just hear the raw guitar that he's playing and it <laughs> and it's like nothing it's just like a single right. chord <laughs> right right now I should at this stage definitely point out that that's not the case and that just because you're using pedals it doesn't mean that you're covering anything up right right I mean actually. What pedals do is just provide different kinds of textures for for your sound and different right. sort of creative things that are um, not only inspiring but always, um, from a musical point of view, uh, often catalysts for different ideas. Or it's sort of like a whole new axis of creativity. Yeah, with, you know that you can extend the same instrument to have. Yeah, exactly right. There is one kind of effects pedal which could be sort of, you know, lumped into a category of something that you could hide behind, Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a compressor. Mm. A a compressor pedal is basically one that squashes the dynamics of your playing, which means that the soft things come out sounding louder Mm -hmm. and the loud things come out sounding much more even. Mm -hmm. So if you have sort of sloppy technique Mm -hmm. uh, and you're sort of all over the place when when it comes to, you know, picking attack and strength and... uh, um, then a compressor can help smooth that over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of bassists kind of, you know, I wouldn't say look down, but sort of there's a tongue-in-cheek attitude towards, you know, using a compressor that, oh, you know, that's that's basically covering up the fact that your technique sucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, this is all very tongue-in-cheek. And as I said, these are all very useful tools and all very valid and there's nothing, uh, there's no argument that, you know, just because you use pedals doesn't make you any better or worse than anything else. But mm-hmm. anyway, back to my point. Uh, I've never really used pedals very much mm-hmm. in the bass, and I've always enjoyed the challenge of trying to get a whole range of different tones just with my fingers. Right. And the precision bass is very good for that because mm-hmm. it's it's so raw that really all you have is your fingers. But there's a whole lot that you can do with it too, you know, depending on how you play with your fingers, whether you're using you know what, are you muting with your palm? Are you playing with mm-hmm. your thumb? Are you playing with all four right, fingers right, in your right. thumb? Are you are you strumming? Are you tapping? Are you slapping? Are you, all these kinds of things. Do you, do you not use a pick at all? You generally play finger song. No, absolutely. I, I use whatever the song needs. Right. So right. if 
uh, I mean, picked bass, the sound of picked bass mm-hmm. is fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's very just, different it's sound, a, right? Yeah, very different absolutely. Attack. But this, yeah, I mean, there's so many different styles of music that just, mm. you know, they, they need that tone. Mm. Obviously, rock, various styles of rock music can really benefit from the, the kind of strong, transient attack that you mm-hmm. get with a pick. Um, but with bass, muted, like palm muted picking. Mm is fantastic for like R&B and soul music as well right. like classic rock right. it just sounds brilliant right. so yeah whatever the whatever the song calls for is is what i go for mm. anyway uh, the pedal board yeah so i do own a few pedals uh and i've uh, actually um my uh, my family is heading to my my children and my wife are heading to japan mm-hmm. uh and there are a few makers in japan um that are very very expensive to buy pedals from in Europe. Mm. So I've got my, uh, I've asked my wife to to pick up two of these uh, pedals that are much, much cheaper in Japan. Mm. While, so I've actually ordered it online and had it sent to my wife's parents' place and she'll mm-hmm. pick it up there and then bring it back. So I've got two coming home mm. and I've got another two in boxes behind me here where um, that I, I basically pulled them out every now and then for, uh, uh, for certain kinds of applications with bands that I play in. Mm-hmm. But they're not sort of regulars, like I just get them out when I need them. So that basically that I have kind of like four or five pedals now. Mm. And so, yeah, I thought, well, you know, why if, again, to save the trouble of sure. taking along a power supply and taking along a, you know, a, a, um, uh, a patch cable and then taking along these two boxes in somewhere in my bag and plugging them in together and doing all that, I mm. thought, well, now why not make a little small mini board of like uh, – four key essential effects that uh, you know can be uh, useful for different situations so so uh, before we go too far into the pedal the most important thing what are they what effects what have you what have you got <laughs> um okay links yeah, so, in the show notes <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yeah so basically um for bassists uh, there are an, kind of a few key essentials that are re- just really great for various styles of music mm-hmm. one is an octave pedal Mm, okay, um, and I use the uh, the classic Boss OC two octave pedal. It's an mm-hmm. analog pedal made by the Japanese company Boss. By analog, so, do you mean it's like a wah wah pedal that is not on off, but you actually, or do you mean it's analog as in the wiring is analog? It's not digital. Yeah, that's right. Wiring. The circuit the circuitry is. Analog. I see. Okay. Yeah. So octave pedals, they're digital octave pedals, mm-hmm. which obviously track much better. So you can play really fast, mm-hmm. and it will keep up with you. Okay. And they they can produce octave up and octave below the mm-hmm. note that you're playing on your instrument. Mm-hmm. But the OC2 is a more sort of old-fashioned uh, Japanese octave pedal that doesn't really track that well. Mm-hmm. But if you play on a bass up high, mm-hmm. the OC2 will produce one octave below and two octaves below. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the sec- two octaves below on a bass is not really that useful. It's a little bit too low and right. it doesn't track that well. So it's sort uh-huh. of like a this kind of low rumble that is mm-hmm. just not really that useful. But one octave below, if you play up high, mm-hmm. it gives the the bass this really distinctive sort of almost like a synth synthesizer tone. Mm. Is it playing it along with your high playing? Does it put both signals yeah. through or are you only getting the low signal? No, that's right. It, it mixes the two together. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say, like, why not just play an octave down? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it mixes the two together. You can dial back the uh, volume of your original tone. I see. You've got like a dry, uh, wet dial or something. Yeah, yeah. Which, which will give you just this sort of weird synth tone, which, mm. is, which is really cool. Mm. Um, so, 
Yeah, the, the Boss OC2 does that. Mm -hmm. Now I have two varieties of distortion. Mm -hmm. So octaves, an octave pedal is one common thing for bassists. Another common thing for bassists is distortion pedals. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously used for styles of music where the bass needs to sound much more aggressive, mm -hmm. uh, like metal or hard rock or right. stuff like that. Right. Now in the realm of distortion, there are three three categories of distorted tone mm -hmm. for guitars and for uh, basses. Do you know what they mm -hmm. are, the three? Right, there's gain. Uh, no. There's that's a, sort of, okay, then I don't know. Okay, so the, the three varieties are distortion, mm -hmm. uh, overdrive. Oh, yeah. Do you, yeah, yeah. Do you know the third one? Uh, tell me and then I'll go, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fuzz. Oh, yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, all right. nice. <laughs> well rehearsed. Well rehearsed. <laughs> yeah, so distortion is oh, how do you explain it? I guess it's kind of like the addition of noise to the signal. Mm -hmm. Overdrive is a clipping of the signal. Right. I think that's what I was thinking of when I said gain, right? You'll often get a button on your amp that says gain, which adds overdrive distortion just as a side effect of the fact that it adds gain, which causes Yeah, clipping. I mean that's the, the original uh, the original the the origin of the distorted guitar tone mm -hmm. basically comes from uh, people driving their tube amps mm -hmm. too hot. Mm -hmm. So you plug, you know, you plug in uh, to your tube amp and if you turn it up too loud, mm -hmm. the, that would actually push, it's pushing the signal through a, a vacuum tube mm -hmm. and it would just, it would clip the tone as in distort the tone, mm. which gives you that distinctive dis distorted guitar tone. Right. So in, in modern day amplifiers, you have a gain and then a master volume. Right which allows you to drive the preamp of the, of the amplifier mm -hmm. and then adjust the output volume with this separate knob um, to, to you know, sit better in the, the mix of the band sound. Right, right. But, and the third variety, fuzz, is um, more like a sort of a synthesized effect. I don't actually know the technical details of how you produce distortion versus how you produce fuzz, mm -hmm. um, but it's a very buzzy mm. kind of extremely artificial sounding, very... Uh, what's what's the right way to put it? The texture is very buzzy, mm. not necessarily as aggressive sounding as distortion. Right. right. I mean, it um, is very much like the name implies. Right. The, the fuzz fuzz yeah. name really does sound fuzzy when you listen to it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, onomat onomatopoeic. Onomatopoeic. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, the two pedals that I have, I have the EBS Multi Drive, uh, which is a versatile overdrive pedal. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the past few days, I've been heavily, heavily down the rabbit hole of uh, fuzz effects for bass guitar. Mm. Yes, and the rabbit hole goes very deep. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it does. <laughs> uh, it goes very deep. Um, the the number one sort of most famous uh, bass guitar, uh, actually most famous fuzz effect mm -hmm. is called the Big Muff. Ah, oh, yeah. Classic. I can I can visualize the pedal now. <laughs> it's this kind of it's kind of this military green mm. uh jungle green colored pedal um that was I think the original one. Now, I'm not going to speak too much here because I actually don't I'm not that familiar with the history of it, mm -hmm. but I think it was made in Russia mm. by a company called Sovtech. Oh, okay. Anyway, I don't know. There there's a there's a connection there between Russia and the and the big muff effect. Mm. So the Big Muff is great for guitar, obviously. It's a fuzz sound, but very heavy, very a lot of low end, very bassy. Mm -hmm. But it has this distinctive kind of dip in the mid-range, mm. uh, which gives it this really sort of, you know, driving 
very satisfying kind of um, powerful distorted tone, mm. which is very fuzzy. Mm. Anyway, uh, it's a it's a staple for bass as well. Mm-hmm. The the fuzz and the, the company that makes it this day these days is called Electro Harmonics, mm-hmm. and um, Electro Harmonics have various. I think they have like eight or nine different varieties of the Big Muff that they offer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was tossing up between getting that the mm-hmm. classic, the classic bass guitar fuzz sound. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that it's not very versatile. Like it is the big muff tone of a one trick pony. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know you, what you hear is what you get. And basically, right. if you're playing a kind of music and you have that tone on, well, then that pretty much categorizes things as oh, that's the big muff bass tone. You know, right? So yeah, I, I uh, went through I think eight or nine different varieties of other fuzz pedals and like really scouring YouTube and and um, the most popular uh, discussion forum for bassists is called talkbass.com mm-hmm. and uh, sort of scouring for people's reviews and impressions and videos and stuff to try and get an idea. Mm. Normally, it would be much smarter to take my bass into a music shop. Right, and, and try, <laughs> try it with a few different things, yeah. Yeah, that, that would have been much smarter, but that's, that uh, wasn't possible in this particular case. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the pedal that I went, ended up going with, I'm so, so much looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. You, you should definitely go to YouTube and have a look at some reviews of this thing because it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's called. It's by a company called Dodd, D-O-D, mm-hmm. which is a division of a company called Digitech. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, Dodd, um, back in the uh, 90s and the, the 2000s when, you know, effects pedals really became a big thing, mm-hmm. Dodd were known for some kind of in the, the lower, more budget range of uh, effects pedals, like not really the... The, the top of the line stuff, but more the the sort of budget kind of options. Mm. A few years back, uh, Dodd went through a big kind of reshuffling and a big changing of ownership or something. I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. And now they're producing some fantastic stuff. All right. So the name of the the effect is called the the Carcosa. C A R C O S A. Is that Spanish? I don't know. It's not a word I know. It's um, yeah, the Carcosa fuzz. It's just this ridiculous thing that is uh, – it's, it's quite cheap mm. and it, it's made by Dodd. It has fantastic graphics on it. Like it's just got this sort of uh, – it's black with this like yellow kind of, I don't know, like a goat skull or something <laughs> on it <laughs> with this like Carcosa written on the bottom. Mm. But it's a really, really interesting fuzz effect and it has controls that allows it to go from a sound that's more like an overdriven, mm-hmm. chunky overdriven bass tone mm. all the way through to – kind of like broken speaker <laughs> you know like all kind of crackly broken really low-fi low bit rate kind of fuzz mm. all in the one pedal mm. it just sounds fantastic and if you if you search for carcosa bass mm-hmm. you'll find or like dodd carcosa fuzz bass you'll find some great uh reviews of it on youtube where you can it, it's just like ridiculous like it just sounds so much fun <laughs> <laughs> cool so obviously Putting that in the context of music, you know, it it, it really would lend a, a distinct flavour. Mm. So that's the the fuzz pedal. Uh, the other notable pedal that is coming back um, with my family from Japan, which mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to, is a phaser pedal. Ah, of course. Yeah, and um, the classic one of the classics. There are a few, but the the classic phaser pedal pedal is made by a company called MXR, mm-hmm. and it's called the Phase Ninety. Mm. And it's a it's a pedal with one knob, mm-hmm. which is speed, <laughs> <laughs> and basically it it just adjusts the rate of the the phasing modulations. Right. 
uh, and that's all you get speed right um, <laughs> it might have been rate but anyway uh, so mxr does great stuff still these days as well obviously and um, they've updated they basically put all of the different famous varieties of phase pedals that they've done mm-hmm. into one small compact pedal mm. still with one knob <laughs> mm-hmm. speed right. um but but a few buttons to allow you to switch between the different generations of this product oh i see oh interesting yeah, yeah. so basically octave mm. uh, overdrive or distortion or fuzz mm-hmm. and uh like a phaser is a bit of an odd choice for a bassist but i absolutely love it so mm. uh, and this this the, the phase 90 is renowned for having excellent low end so when you put it on with a bass guitar mm. what often happens when these are all guitar effects so right, if you right. uh if you put them on with a bass guitar what often happens is that the, the low end disappears and it's mm. not so bassy anymore basically mm-hmm. All of these are, are effects that are um, certified, you know, usable by bassists mm. also. Mm. Naturally, bass, uh, guitar pedal companies also offer pedals that are specifically for bassists as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this particular case, the ones that I've chosen are, are kind of um, unisex. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so um, uh, the other one that you'll often find on a bass guitarist pedal board are uh, preamps. Mm-hmm. And uh, DI boxes. So a preamp is used for basically uh, kind of like a pre-amplifier, mm-hmm. hence preamp, mm-hmm. for your amplifier. Right. So it'll allow you to boost the signal uh, with a specific kind of uh, curve, like a, a tone curve to it, mm-hmm. um, before it goes into the amplifier, which can be helpful, obviously, for recording, mm-hmm. but um, also in cases where you want to keep a, a fairly consistent sound between different amplifiers. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the other one, and of course, and a DI box, which is uh, you know useful for recording and and going into front of house and stuff right, like right. that. So yeah, it's a little bit. Uh, the other one that I'm leaving out there that often bassists use is a chorus pedal. Mm-hmm. A chorus pedal is one that takes the signal and mixes in with it a the same signal but slightly pitch modulated, mm. and that creates this kind of washy, more lush sound. Um, and chorus pedals are very, very useful for guitars and mm-hmm. keyboards, mm-hmm. electric keyboards. Um, but on bass, yeah, you, it was very big in the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, the, the sound of chorus bass, especially with slap basses, often used to use mm-hmm. chorus on their bass. But it's much harder to find a good chorus pedal for bass guitar because modulating the pitch of low end mm-hmm. makes a big difference to the pitch, right? Yeah, it, it just kind of yeah. makes everything feel a bit muddy and, right, and right. less distinct. So most bass, purely bass-only mm-hmm. chorus pedals will actually not touch the low end mm. and they'll only add this chorus effect to the high end mm. or they allow you to mix in some of your dry signal mm-hmm. uh, in with, with the affected signal. Mm. I use flat-wound strings on my precision bass mm-hmm. and that's a much more vintage tone, like think kind of like uh, Motown kind of tone mm-hmm. um, so it's much more deep there's much less high-end information mm-hmm. so in my particular case with my choice in bass guitar and uh, strings it's uh you know a chorus pedal is, is you know maybe not so useful in my case right right so, i never got along with i had one of those multi-effects when i used to play electric guitar yeah uh, which are you know the quality is not nearly as good as buying the specific effect for the specific thing. But it does give you mm. a good overview of the different types of effects that are available because, you know, it's one big box with, like, overdrive and chorus and phase and flange and all sorts of things right. in, in one set. Uh, but I never 
liked the sound of my guitar going through a chorus pedal. I just never, there's some, mm. you know, maybe I wasn't using it right, but yeah, I could never get into yeah, it. Yeah, chorus, chorus pedals, when you, when you listen to good chorus pedals, mm-hmm. they really sound amazing, like really amazing. Like mm. they're, they're just sort of this, this lush wash, uh, you know, sort of a swimming tone that just instantly becomes beautiful mm. <laughs> in a way when you listen to a good one. And if if it's not really set up right, or if it's you know not such a great unit, or mm-hmm. you know if there's something fundamental about the electronics that just doesn't suit the tone of your playing mm. or your guitar, mm. then yeah, it, it just sort of sounds like mud, right? Um, and not not really very interesting. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, the pedal board uh, is a, a chunk of metal. It's basically a slab of metal. Mm-hmm. In this case, aluminium, aluminium, <laughs> which um, uh, I have purchased a. Um, uh, a power brick, like a little power supply mm-hmm. that actually takes uh, like an 18-volt input and then splits it up into four, in my case, the one that I've got, splits up into four isolated 9-volt outputs. Mm-hmm. And then you take a little power cable from each one of those outputs on the power brick mm-hmm. to the uh, like a 9-volt input on each of the pedals. Mm-hmm. And that way you don't have to fiddle around with batteries. Mm-hmm. And this power brick can be attached on the underside of this kind of little metal plate. Mm. And then, yeah, you, you attach some Velcro tape on top and Velcro to the bottom of your uh, pedals. And uh, there you go. You have a pedal board. Very nice. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to uh, having these options. It's funny, after like 25 years of playing bass and being such a stubborn, <laughs> stubborn cable-only kind of person, mm. you know, I think just having these options uh, for different kinds of tones and different things mm. to sort of uh, set, you know, help create moods with uh, with the band is mm. something that I'm mm. uh, really looking forward to. Yeah, it'll be fun. Although uh, another dangerous uh, <laughs> rabbit hole once you start opening the door to to more kinds of gear sedents. Yeah, that's <laughs> but yeah, that's bit, we call it gas which is gear acquisition syndrome. Right, yes. Specifically the reason why I bought the smallest pedal board that I could find. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> and also, also a power supply that only has four outputs on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> because, yeah, as you say, you know, effects pedals are quite affordable. Mm-hmm. They are, you know, built rock solid. You know, they're, they're, they're made usually in uh, these, like, really heavy iron or steel enclosures that mm. you could kick down a staircase and there would be no problem. I love the graphic design of effects uh, pedals, mm-hmm. like especially the more boutique kind of. A classic company that comes to mind is one called Earth. Uh, oh boy, I better make sure I get it right. Earthquaker Devices, I think it's called. Mm. If you check out some of the names of their pedals mm-hmm. and the, the the graphic design on them, mm. it's it's wonderful. Like it's that magic mojo of rock and roll. <laughs> you know, it's sort of the 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 mythological aspect. You know, you have this sort of. Yeah, you know, it's like fantastic names to their pedals, like Westwood and the the Hoof. Then <laughs> like, there's 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 like the Terminal, and uh, I don't know. There's there's loads of them that mm. they look fantastic and they mm. they sound incredible too. Anyway, it is a deep rabbit hole, and I'm not going to go very deep down it because I don't have that much money. <laughs> but uh, yeah, pretty happy with. Uh, Very good. That'll be exciting. Yeah, I've actually um, uh, been looking for a new band to play in here mm-hmm. in Stockholm. Mm. Um, I tried tried out for one band uh, last week. Unfortunately, mm. I didn't get the part. I was uh, I think I might have been a little too old, mm. or maybe maybe they just didn't like my playing. I don't know. But mm. they, they were a really nice bunch of twenty five year olds, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm uh, I'm not twenty five. That's for sure. <laughs> like a, 
I've been I've been playing bass for 25 years. Right. So, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it, it was really nice. But in the end, they said, you know, thanks, but uh, we're going to go with somebody else, and mm. that, that's cool. Mm. But I've uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to. I found a band that uh, plays funk and soul music, which is mm-hmm. right up my alley. Mm. It's kind of very close to all the music that I've played in previous bands, which mm-hmm. have all basically been funk and soul, all uh, sort of 40 to 50-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that, I'm going to be uh, auditioning for them in a few weeks. Oh, cool. So I'm, I'll be uh, taking my pedal board and <laughs> might not use the Carcosa for that one. <laughs> the, this destructive, violent, <laughs> diabolical fuzz tone. Uh, but yeah. Oh, good luck. So you had a multi-effects unit, but did you ever have any dedicated uh, uh, effects pedals? I don't think I did. No, I played mm. with, I had a lot of friends who were more serious about guitar and played in bands and I played with theirs a lot. Right. But no, I, I only had the sort of, I, I can't remember if it was a boss or something else, but it, yeah, one of those multi-effects pedals. Right. Yeah, yeah they, they they are great. And there are many multi-effects pedals these days uh, that are very affordable that do, mm. you know, an excellent, excellent job at um, uh, giving you a great coverage of different kinds of effects mm. that are extremely usable. But I think there's a small part of the, the, the fun with effects pedals that is heavily influenced by the design and the name and the legacy behind them. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, and the the look of them, what they're called, who used them, mm-hmm. you know, all of that stuff is is ultimately irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> what it looks like, what it's called, who right. uses it. Like right. it's not really important at all. Right, right. Um, what's important fun. is the sound. But it's part of the fun. And I think um, that's the reason why, you know, it's, uh, successful pedal companies really play to that mm-hmm. and they'll – Earthquaker Devices is one. It's great, you know, if you check out the this Dodd Carcosa and to see what it looks like. Right. That also, you know, it's um, like, for example, that there's two modes of fuzz that it does. Mm-hmm. There's a little switch in the middle, switch between them. Mm. And one's called Heli, H-E-L-I, mm. and the other one's called Demi, which is D-E-M-H-E. Mm. <laughs> I have no idea what these mean, <laughs> but it's probably sort of tied to some kind of mythology somewhere in the right, world. Right. <laughs> but it's it's cool, you know. I mean, that's just like the fun of it. So, right. <laughs> yeah, we should put a link in the show notes as well to that, and also to the great video of Devin Townsend showing off his pedal board. Oh yeah, because uh, we talked about Devin Townsend a few episodes ago, and uh, and there's right. just a great video of him him showing it off. So yeah, we'll put that in there as well. Yeah, Devin, he's uh, he's fantastic, but he's a he, that's a good example of what I mean by pedals being wonderful for just broadening the right. the kind of range of textures that you can achieve and inspiring ideas and stuff right. like that. Right, definitely. Cool. Well, there we go. Well, we can't go yet. Oh. There's one more thing. Okay. What's that? This. Oops, I did it again. Is this a Britney Spears song? Uh, it is, but that's not... Oh, damn it. I'm not, sorry, I tried to send you... Oh, there it is. Let's see. What has Danny bought now? I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say you've bought another watch. You have. <laughs> Let me just have a look here. What have we got? It's a bit different. Oh wow! Fantastic. It's like a. It's a. What is this? Like a Chinese communist era watch? <laughs> well, we still are in the communist era in China, but uh, yes. Uh, sure. yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Fantastic. It's uh It's well. It's made in Tianjin for one thing. Mm-hmm. That's what it says. Tianjin. Tianjin wristwatch factory. Yes. Very well. Well done. Bit of Chinese practice for you there. This is great. Do you want to describe it uh, uh, a little better? Sure. Yeah, sure. Well, it's a chronograph. Mm-hmm. 
which means it's kind of got a stopwatch feature. Basically, we have a beautiful, quite large dial. Looks great on your wrist. Thank you. Um, it is got a, it's got a silver face, uh, nice kind of sharp blue hands. Mm-hmm. Obviously, being a chronograph, you have two extra dials there. One is a, um, let's see, one would be, looks like one is a regular seconds counter. Mm-hmm. The other one, I guess, would be minutes for the stopwatch. Correct. Uh, and then you have a red, traditionally what would be the seconds hand, is your um, stopwatch for the seconds. Right. And the maker is, well, that I guess it will be 21. 21 Zwan is not the maker. That is, Zwan oh, okay. is, is crystal, right? Oh, okay. Sure. Uh, so it's 21 crystal, you know, like right. watches are 18 crystal or 21 crystal or whatever. So that's what that means. Yes. Uh, the ma- the maker the is the Tianjin wristwatch factory. Watch factory, right. right. And we've got this uh, nice red star at 12 o'clock. Mm-hmm. This is fantastic. It looks great. The, is it? Am I um, right in assuming? Looking at it, it looks like the what do you call it? The glass is slightly elevated from the case. It is. Yeah, it's it's sort of slightly dome shaped. Yeah, nice. Um, like a nice. And vintage. in fact, that's part of what gives it. It's actually only a thirty-eight millimeter dial. Right. Okay. Uh, but it looks much bigger than it is, partly because mm. of that. This is this is called. Do you mind if I ask how much it cost? So this is this is. I, I seem to be getting these watches at increasing frequency, but each one is cheaper than the last. <laughs> right. This one, I can't remember exactly, but it was about $230. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it's yep. partly because what one thing that you haven't mentioned when you said it was the Tianjin wristwatch factory, that was written, uh, that at the bottom there uh, is written in Chinese. It says yeah. China uh, and then Tianjin wristwatch factory. Right. And it's a very unashamedly unabashedly chinese watch which is not right. usually like you know in the watch world china doesn't have the best reputation <laughs> hmm. and a lot of a lot of chinese watches try to make themselves look not chinese right and more swiss <laughs> right 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 but this is made by a brand called seagull who are actually one of the biggest makers of watch movements in the world Mm. as it happens but they tend to make movements for the kind of cheaper end of mechanical wristwatches wait a moment is this new this is new Ah. but it is a reissue Mm. of a design that seagull that same company made in 1963 oh that's fantastic so So it's it's a retro sort of 1963 design right but made new by the same company, much like the Stover that I have now, which is the same company right, right. that made the original sort of 40s era naval pocket watch that, that the, the Marine original is based on. Right. Is it, um, is it automatic or is it a hand, hand winder? It is a, a hand wound uh, chronograph. Right. And it's, it's so interesting. It, it's, it's, it's got a sort of funny story behind it, as, as many Chinese things do. Right. But there's like, because I saw it, it was really big in about 2013. It made a big splash. Mm. And it was on Worn and Wound and places like that. There's some good reviews. Mm. But it's now a little bit harder to get a hold of. Mm. It's not not currently being sold by Seagull. Mm. And there are a few people who've, who sort of bought it in batch and are reselling it. But the other funny thing is, like, licensing and IP ownership mm. is a little bit more... Lucy Goosey in China. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy Goosey. 
yeah. not quite as strict as it. So apparently, this guy called Thomas mm. from Hong Kong, who used to work at Seagull, he was the driving force behind deciding to create this reissue of this watch. Right. He really pushed for them to make it. And then he was there when they released this reissue and started selling it. Uh, but then sort of some stuff happened. Nobody ne- really knows what. And two things happened. He was fired, uh-huh. or at least he stopped working for Seagull. Right. And they stopped selling this reissue. Mm. But apparently when he left, like he took all the watches <laughs> like all, all this stock of this design that, that, that they right. had reissued and so he was selling it so for a while people were saying like oh yeah if you want it you have to go you have to buy it from thomas meanwhile ah. seagull were at, were not producing it themselves but they were sort of allowing the license to be used and they were selling right. the movements right, to right. a number of other sort of companies around china mm. Uh, who all came out with their own very slightly, you know, similar but slightly different versions of this oh, reissue. Right. Um, and then there was another guy called Ed, who was, like, close with Thomas, but he had another version that he was selling. And so there was, like, this thread on Reddit saying, are the Seagull 1963s legit? Right. Or are they sort of knockoffs? Right. And the the sort of answer was, like, well... What does legitimate mean anyway? <laughs> like, how do you define legitimate and knockoff in this sort of strange scenario where, like, Seagull, the one who originally produced it, they were, it is a legitimate reissue of the thing that they originally produced, but then they decided they didn't want to do it anymore. But the guy who did decide to do it left Seagull. Right. The original designer, the original guy who sort of took the original things and remade it for the reissue was legitimately the one selling some of these things through his email address with no storefront right. website or anything, just via, like, people emailing him on Gmail or something. Right. And, like, <laughs> like, so, like, is he the most legitimate? Or you can buy it from, like, totally, like, legit uh, import watch resellers in right. in Europe and places. Uh, so, like, are they more legitimate? <laughs> is Seagull the only legitimate ones? Do you have to buy one of the ones that they actually sold before they discontinued it? Like, right. what? Like, essentially, you have to make up your own mind. Mm. And somebody wrote a really good summary of, like, these are all the variations of the watches that have been released in the last few years. Right. Uh, this is kind of what I've managed to find out about the story behind them and the background. Right. And you can choose... Which one? And ironically, it's like the reissue that Seagull made, Hmm. if that's what you want to treat as legitimate, that's one thing. But somebody else made another reissue, which is the one that I have, which says uh, Tianjin, whatever, the the Tianjin watch factory at the bottom. Right. That's closer to the original design. Okay. Whereas the Seagull reissue only says... Chugoku at the bottom without the Tianjin watch factory like so do you want to be closer to the original 1963 design or to the reissue or do you not care about any of that and you want a slightly more modern design because the one that Ed sells like has the star not in red (laughs) if you shy away from the communist aspect of it like right uh, yeah, I don't think you mentioned in, in your mini review, I'll put a, a picture in the show notes, but the, there's a big red star at the bottom underneath the 12 index, which is yeah, obviously... Yeah, I did mention, um, I did mention that, yeah. Yeah, uh, because this is actually a design that the um, that was used uh, uh, by 
um, the the Air Force, the Chinese Air Force in 1963. Right. Uh, so it's kind of a military design. Right. So it's a sort of really interesting, like it's very different from like the other watches that I bought. Like, you know, Amiga has a very sort of strict sense of like what is legitimate, what isn't. You know, right. the value goes down immensely if the dial has ever been modified or if they've changed the glass at the top from the mm. original or anything like that. Um, and this is like the complete other extreme of like, well, this is what's out there. This is as much as I could dig up in terms of information. <laughs> like, make your own choice. Um, but I, I do really like it. I like, there's something about it, like, again, it's the complete opposite to what I've gone for with the kind of Stover and the uh, and the Amiga that I have, is that it's, it's so uh, not refined <laughs> it's mm. like the thing we were talking about swiss watches and that i like this the refined swiss watch design this is like it's quite garish right it's got a silver <laughs> dial gold indices blue hands a red star and a red timer hand right like it's this sort of mishmash of different colors and it's got like roman numerals it's got arabic numerals roman text and then chinese text at the bottom it's uh, it's like a whole mishmash of different ideas, and yet somehow I like the way it all comes together, and it's a really sort of fun uh, watch. And it wasn't too expensive, mm. so it's I've been really enjoying it the last few weeks. Yeah, I think it's great. Congratulations! I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> very jealous, but it's uh, it's probably a, a different kind of you know complement to your other two watches. Like I was going to say. From an appearance point of view mm-hmm. and a complications point of view, it's mm. a compliment to your other two watches, obviously, right? Because this is a chronograph, but also the the with this knowing this background behind it, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, this this uh, what a amazing kind of um, fascinating novelty <laughs> in a no. way that the, the, the legacy behind it. That's fantastic. I think watches. It's uh, it's important to have. Well, it's it's important to watch lovers, at least. Mm-hmm. The, the legacy, the story behind the watch is equally as important as what it looks like and how well it functions, especially mm. in this in this realm of mechanical watches. Mm. And this this story is incredible. I was just about to ask, you answered my question, but I was gonna ask then, you know, is this a Thomas version or an Ed version or a Seagull version or something else? Right. So it's actually <laughs> so, I got it from a European watch importer called Watch Unique. Okay. I can't remember exactly which issue it is, mm. but it's not the Ed one. Okay, it, it's either the original Seagull one or the Thomas one. I can't remember which is which. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. And it has a, it's got a display case back, which is nice actually because the being a chronograph, the movement is actually really interesting. There's quite a lot going mm. on. Yeah, sure. Can you take a picture for me later? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, it also came in the box. Comes in a lovely sort of replica military-looking silver. A cylindrical box right and also you know with a big red star and sort of retro chinese communist styling uh typeface and so forth mm. and in the box it comes with another case back which is oh wow not not see-through so you can you can swap out the case back if you want if you prefer the uh traditional because the original right. 1963 watch wouldn't have had a display case back right or if you uh, if you're going to put on a nato strap then uh, having a, a well back might be it, it actually comes on a nato strap as well oh, okay. I, i've swapped nice. swapped out the strap in this photo but the nato strap it comes with is a sort of military green right kind of khaki green kind of color and that's also quite nice but the thing is you can't quite tell in that photo but 
again, being a chronograph, it sits quite high off the wrist. And with a NATO sure. strap, it sits even higher and it felt a sure, bit yeah. much. So. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! Congratulations. This is great. Yeah. You're, uh, you're, you, yeah. I'm, I'm still rocking the old de facto. Like, I don't know if I'll. It, well, it, it is a, a beautiful watch. I mean, I still, to be honest, like I bought that other watch before, and I've got this one now. I still wear the Stover nearly every day. Like, right. I wear the Amiga now really only when I go out dancing to tango, or when I go out for nice meals, like for smart occasions. Right, um, and I wear this one sometimes on sunny days when I just want to have a bit of fun. Right, <laughs> I don't like. I don't really have a need for a chronograph. I've used it a little bit when I've been brewing a cup of tea, <laughs> <laughs> just just to time the brew. But uh, other right. than that, so it's really just depending on on how I feel that day. But this is extremely not water resistant, <laughs> so right, right. I tend to avoid it on rainy days. Well, there's there's two complications that you definitely need next. Mm. Number one, of course, is a GMT. <laughs> uh, sorry, that's one I need next. But right. uh, number two, you got to get a moon phase. A moon phase. It's been on the list for such a long time. The thing is, the moon phase that I originally wanted, which is the Frederic Constantin slimline moon phase, is like. 42 millimeters right huge it's really big right and the actual design of the watch is is quite smart looking it's it's more Mm. of a formal kind of style it's got a dark blue face and this moon face complication and very little else Mm. and i just think it drowns in this gigantic dial like i i tried it on and on my wrist it just felt too big Right. They've released a smaller one now, but I think they've only released that with the white face. I don't think they've got that with the blue face, and I quite like the look of the blue face. So right, right. Uh, one way or the other, I've never found one that was quite, you know, that was quite nice because it was reasonably affordable and it was, you know, a simple design, uh, but it, it was just too big. And then the other moon phases that I've seen that I like the look of, they were just far too expensive. Right. So I'm going to have mm. to hold off on the moon phase for, for now. And the Amiga as well. The Amiga did a a moon phase speedmaster okay uh, but i tried that on that was just far too big and bulky for me so right right yeah well fantastic i want to make just one quick announcement before we finish oh okay and um, that is that the uh the music project that i'm working on called remote transmission mm-hmm. uh the first single mm-hmm. uh is going to be released on the 1st of march oh very exciting uh, okay which is yeah which is in between this episode and the next one. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in hearing that, um, please follow me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. My handle is uh, A-Type808. Mm-hmm. And Remote Transmission also has a Twitter handle, a Twitter account as well, which is Remote Trans MSN. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's going to be available on uh, Bandcamp and Apple Music and Spotify and uh, all of those uh, online stores including uh, soundcloud as well so pretty much everywhere oh, you'll awesome. be able to listen to it uh or purchase it if you so desire to support uh what we're trying to do great um yeah just as a quick, quick recap basically the the premise behind remote transmission is that uh, we are taking very short science fiction stories that are connected together in a linear storyline mm. uh, and basically setting them to essentially ambient techno, I suppose you would call it. Mm-hmm. And this is the very first song. It's called 4001. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, quite proud of it. It came together pretty well. I don't think 
in, in to be candid, I don't think it's going to be our best work. Mm-hmm. Like I think that uh, as is the case, you know, the very first thing you do uh, is probably not going to be the best uh, example of of the of the work. And I think as we do more of it, it's going to come together much more um, kind of uh, seamlessly and organically. So mm-hmm. it's going to get better as we go along. So please join us for the ride. Mm, great. Yeah, I'll put links in the show notes to whatever I can link to, the, the Twitter or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I'll look forward to hearing it as well. <laughs>